I'm Sarah Lippman. Welcome to Torati Mecha Nach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today, we will be learning Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles, Volume 1, Chapter 9. Let's begin by reading the first three verses of the chapter. V'chol Yisrael hisyachsu, v'hinam ksuvim al sefer malchei Yisrael. All of Israel were counted in the family listings. They were recorded in the records of the kings of Israel. But we no longer have those records. Those were lost when the ten tribes were originally exiled. V'yehuda haglu lavavel b'ma'alam. But Yehuda were exiled to Bavel for the betrayal. I, says Ezra, have found all the records that I could and provided copies here. V'hayoshvim harishonim asher ba'chuzasam ba'arehem. And the first people who came back to live in Israel was Zerubavel's contingent, settled in their ancestral family properties and cities. So chapter 9 has sent us through a time warp into Ezra's present. It is a period in which Jews are returning from the Babylonian exile after the destruction of the first temple and entering Israel in order to build the second temple. Thus chapter 9 is an utter anomaly in Divrei Hayamim, even as Divrei Hayamim itself is an anomaly in Tanakh. The first eight chapters of Divrei Hayamim form a section of genealogies, from Adam to the end of the First Temple era. The rest of the book, from chapter 10 onward, forms a second section of Divrei Hayamim, retelling and reframing in a narrative format the rule of the royal house of David, from the rise of King David and his plans for the First Temple, through to the destruction of that temple and the Babylonian exile. Chapter 9 is set in a time post-dating the rest of Divrei Hayamim entirely, it tells of the Shavetzion, those who returned to Yehuda and Yerushalayim during Ezra's own days, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, repopulating the ancestral lands of Yehuda and Binyamin region. Ral Bag understands that Ezra has sort of inserted the list of those who returned to Jerusalem adjacent to telling of the original exile. This is to help us see that even the exile itself was a function of God's love, helping us become straight and strong in our service of God and reminding us that the purpose of the exile was only ever to be able to bring us back from the exile. The first 18 verses of chapter 9 are almost identical with chapter 11 in the book of Nehemiah. In seeking to understand this chapter, Rav Moshe Eisman, in the Art Scroll Divrei Hayamim, turns to a comment made by Ramban, Nachmanides, in his essay Sefer Hagaula, The Book of Redemption. Ramban notes that the final two verses of Divrei Hayamim are the opening two verses of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thus, Divrei Hayamim, although counted as the final book in Ksuvim in the writings, seems to actually serve as an introduction to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, as we mentioned, the first 18 verses of the ninth chapter of Divrei Hayamim sound an awful lot like the 11th chapter of Nehemiah, listing the names of those Yoshvim Harishonim, those first settlers who answered the call, got up at the opportunity to return to the land of Yehuda and rebuild it, with their families, heads of families, and a count of heads. Ramban presents this as the key to understanding the structure of Divrei Hayamim altogether. He understands that the first eight chapters are providing family backgrounds of the people who are presented here in chapter 9. So chapter 9 seems to pull back a curtain. It's like the scene in the camera has swung around to point at the audience and remind them of who they are. Starting from chapter 10, the rest of Divrei Hayamim is the history of those people, whose history continues from their recent past into their present in the book of Ezra. 
Rabbi Eisman, however, points out that we are still left to ask why Ezra would write Divrei Hayamim as a lead-in to the book of Ezra Nehemiah. How does Divrei Hayamim provide something that the books of Shmuel and Melachim do not? We have learned before that Ezra wrote the Chronicles as a historical guidebook to redemption, the days of Mashiach. He wrote this historical guidebook not because redemption was so far off into the future. It's because it was dangling right there in front of them. It was an imminent reality for the people whose names are listed in this chapter. Jerusalem was welcoming back her people. Zerubbabel, a leader descended from the sons of David, and a righteous Kohen Gadol, Yehoshua, serving in the base Hamikdash. All the pieces were in place. Divrei is written from the perspective that the soul of Jerusalem is coming back to life. Thus we find in this chapter, Levium serving today, meaning in Ezra's day, just as their ancestors had done. Guardians of the doorways, responsible for the work of the service, just as their ancestors had been responsible to care for the tabernacle, the Mishkan, in the encampment in the desert. That sense that the ancient soul of Jerusalem is coming back to life today sings out in the verses of this chapter. The people of Ezra's time felt much as we might feel today if we were preparing to resume the ancient duties of our ancestors in the Beis HaMikdash. They were nervous, even scared, because how can we step into such a level of holiness? We're just us. Ezra was educating the generation that was poised to usher in an era of Jewish revival. You are the children of the greatest people to have walked the planet. Their blood runs in your veins. Their commitment to godliness beats in your heart. Your prosaic everyday life is going to be transformed by your dedication to Hashem. By your consecrating one in ten of the population to live in Jerusalem, fully focused on a life of Kedusha, sanctity, and avoda, service, and you will discover the glory of the past that will become your daily reality. This potential that Ezra saw was in fact there, but it was not fully realized. And so Divrei Hayamim becomes part of the canon of Tanakh, for me, for you, who also have the blood of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, running in our veins, with the power and dedication of the tribes of Yehuda, Levi, Binyamin, Shimon, Ephraim, and Menasha, pounding in our heartbeats. Ezra left this here for us. It could be us, you and me. Verses 4 through 6, the families of Yehuda who came initially, 690. Verses 7 through 9, the families of Binyamin who came first back to Israel. 956. Verses 10 through 13. The Kohanim who came back first, according to their family groups, 1,760. And they were Giborei Chel Malachas Avodas Besa Elokim, powerfully accomplished in the service of the house of God. Verses 14 through 34. The first families of the Levium, the sinkers, the gatekeepers, those responsible for the vessels, the flour, wine, oil, and spices, and the baking of the breads. Ele Yashvu Birushalayim. All these lived in Jerusalem. In verses 35 through 44, the end of the chapter, we have a listing of those who lived in Givon from the tribe of Binyamin. If that sounds familiar, it's because this entire passage repeats a substantial passage near the end of chapter 8, verses 29 through 38 
with only a few very tiny differences. The Vilna Gaon says that where in chapter 8 this passage serves as part of the genealogy of the tribe of Binyamin, and in fact just about concludes the entire eight-chapter genealogy, which began with Adam, here the passage serves to introduce or lead into the narrative portion of Divrei Hayamim, the story of how Shaul's kingship was turned over to King David. I'll just point out here that the Mesora, the Jewish tradition from Sinai, divides the Torah into books, which are divided into passages of sentences, verses. Those passages are set off and identified by blank spaces that are between them. The five books of the Chumash are further divided into partios, what we think of as weekly portions. The spaces that set apart passages are the natural divisions between themes. The numbered chapters that we're so accustomed to using as references to the text are a product of the Christian church. They're generally attributed to the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1200s. Here, we have no reason to assume that the passage at the end of chapter 9 really is attached to chapter 9. It may more naturally just be the lead-in to chapter 10. In connecting the lists of settlers of his own time back to their ancestors from the earliest days of Jewish history— one theme really stands out. We can see this most clearly in the descriptions of the Levium, verses 10 through 34. So, for example, in verse 17, the Levium are described as Hashoarim, the gatekeepers, Vadhena Bishar Hamelech Mizracha. All these years until now, they were at the eastern royal gate. As Malbim reads this verse, this post was a legacy from their ancestors. In Ezra's days, the gatekeepers were descendants of those who were appointed by King David 500 years before to be gatekeepers. And even that post was similar to the one assigned to them by God in the wilderness when the Mishkan was first built. And similarly, in verse 19, his brothers from his family, the Korchim, were in charge of the work of the service, guardians of the doorposts of the Mishkan, as their forefathers had been in charge of the camp of Hashem, guardians of the entryway. So in the temple, they have the corresponding assignments that their ancestors had in the Mishkan in the wilderness encampment, guarding the entrance, transporting items which belonged in the innermost parts of the Mishkan. Verse 20, And Pinchas, the son of Elazar, was their leader prior. God was with him. Pinchas? Pinchas, the son of Elazar? This is the grandson of Aaron HaKohen. He's the nephew of Moshe Rabbeinu. This is Pinchas, who was redeemed from Egypt, was active in the wilderness, and was the Kohen Gadol after his father Elazar when the nation first entered the land of Israel under Yehoshua. Pinchas, the son of Elazar, was leader over them long before Hashem was with him. Wow! Why is Pinchas named here? Pinchas stands out, of course, as being the only individual ever promoted from being a Levi to being a Kohen, because he defended the Jewish people from the ravages and plague caused by Cosby and Zimri. It is there in Parshas Pinchas that the Torah associates Pinchas not only with his father Elazar, but also his grandfather Aharon, famously known as Ohev Shalom Verodev Shalom, one who loved peace and who pursued peace, Ohev Esabrios, one who loved other people. When Pinchas killed Cosby and Zimri, it wasn't because he didn't love people enough, it was because he loved people enough to stand up and defend them, even to defend them from their own leader. This is a special characteristic of the tribe of Levi, a love of their people that is almost supernatural. It is their superpower.
Pinchas exemplifies this by caring enough to take the risk and act. He defended his brothers when no one else did. He had their backs. When we love others because they are God's children, nothing can interfere with or weaken that care. Nothing can stop us. Ohev Shalom, the Rodev Shalom. Like his grandfather, he loved peace and he actively pursued it. He cared enough to do something about it. I want to remind you that Pinchas was mocked and demeaned. Even in his shining moment, people made fun of his ancestry. At the same time as they were trying to bring him down, God was elevating him to the kahuna, the priesthood. In fact, says the Ralbag, the glory of Pinchas's achievement, to act from love and to not give back the negativity that was thrown at him, that didn't just make him a kohen, a priest. He and ten generations of his descendants were kohanim gedolim, the high priests, the leaders, all the way through to the end of the first temple era. Yehot Sadak, Pinchas's tenth generation grandson, was the kohen gadol at the time that Nebuchadnezzar exiled the kingdom of Yehuda. One might say, Pinchas didn't just become a kohen, he became the most kohen of them all. There's more, though. This reference to Pinchas serves to connect and justify the roles of the Kohanim and Leviim, these constant duties, which are at once privileges and responsibilities, and which trace back to their ancestors. They were established by David HaMelech and Shmuel the prophet, Be'emunasam, in their trustworthiness. So do you know why the tribe of Levi has a special place in the Jewish world? Do you know why they serve in the holiness of the Beis HaMikdash? Why they lead the blessings after meals? While they come up first to read from the Torah? Why they are the honor guard? They were established as such in their trustworthiness, their loyalty. Verse 26, For they, the four mightiest of the gatekeepers, are with Emunah. They can be counted on. They are consistently trustworthy. Haim Halavim. These are Livium. They are in charge of the chambers and the storehouses of the house of God. Verse 27. They shall sleep surrounding the house of God, for they are responsible to guard it, and they are in charge of the key. Villa Boker la Boker. Morning after morning. Each and every morning. Verses 28, 29, and 30. And some were responsible for the vessels, some for the flour the wine, the oil, the incense, and the spices. Verse 31, And Matisya of the Levium, firstborn of Shalom HaKarchi, Be'emuna alayma aseha chavitim, faithfully, with emuna, prepared the chavitim offerings. Al halechem hama'areches lahachin, Shabbos, Shabbos. And their brethren prepared the array of bread, Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos after Shabbos, each and every week. And the singers had their place, Kiyomam Valaila, Aleham Bamalacha, for by day and by night they were on duty. Verse 34 Ela Haavos, La Levim Litoldosam Rashim. These are the families of the Levium, the starting point of their descendants. Ela Yashvu Virushalayim. It is they who dwelt in Jerusalem. Thus says Rav Moshe Eisman, if chapter 9 serves to bind together the continuity across a thousand years of generations, from the very first Avoda in the Mishkan in the wilderness, and all the way through King David and into the days of Ezra and the rebuilt Second Temple, what is the nature of that golden thread? The passion of the ancestor 
is passed on to the children. This is the foundational principle of Divri Hayamim as a whole. And here we have perhaps the clearest expression of it in the text. Before embarking on that historical journey, Ezra pauses in chapter 9 to speak directly to the people of his era, to remind them that who they are is a function of what their ancestors cared most deeply about, and to remind them that it still lives on within them. And finally, chapter 9 closes with verses 35 through 44, a family list of the tribe of Binyamin that replicates the list at the end of chapter 8. Says the Malbim, I do not know why this passage is repeated a second time, nor why only this short passage concludes with Atzel rather than continuing further. It does seem that where the first list was part of the greater record of the tribe of Binyamin, this one is leading us intentionally right up to Shaul HaMelech, King Saul, the first king of Israel. It is this passage that is the subject of the statement of our sages, Bain Atzel Atzel, that from the first mention of Atzel at the end of chapter 8 to the last mention of Atzel at the end of chapter 9, there are the 400 camel loads of explanations. Verse 39. V'ner holides Kish, v'kish holides Shaul. Ner fathered Kish, and Kish fathered Shaul. Wait a minute. Shaul, the son of Kish? This is King Shaul, King Saul, the very first king of Israel, who ruled for a short time before King David's reign. The Talmud Yerushalmi in Shavias says, In one verse we read, Ner fathered Kish. In another verse we read, Kish is the son of Aviel. So is the father's name Aviel, or is it Ner? Rather, Aviel was his real name. But because he lit candles for the benefit of the public, his name is called Ner, candle. And the Minchas Arev emphasizes, The merit that Shaul has is that as king, he would proactively take responsibility to protect, defend, and save the Jewish people, just as his grandfather Aviel did in his more local way, by lighting candles to help protect others from stumbling on dark roads and in alleys. Once again, the passion of the ancestor is passed on to the children. What a beautiful example. Aviel, acting locally, helping the people around him, noticing that there's a need, there are dark streets, there are uneven stones, and lighting the way for others on a consistent basis. That kind of consistency and dedication is what makes his grandson fit to be a king. And so yet again, Ezra, in just a small change of a name, teaches us a lesson for all time. We don't need to worry about striving for fame and glory in the eyes of our society. What we need to do is be the heroes of the people around us, the rocks, the people that can be trusted and relied upon. And God sees. God sees into the hearts of all people. He can see who is working be'emuna, And when he sees that faithfulness, that loyalty, that solidity, he treasures it, he values it, he embeds it in the hearts of the children. And these are the people he entrusts with the most important and holy jobs of all. That is a far greater honor and fame, more satisfying and more meaningful than anything that society can provide. Thank you for learning together with me, Le'ilui Nishmas, Rose Foreman, Rezel Rachel, Bas Arieleib, and Rachel Zeitlin.